0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. When we think about major issues in public health, one that comes to mind is climate change. But what exactly is climate change, and how might it impact the way we live, learn, work, and play? In other words, why is climate change a public health issue? That's the topic of our episode today. Of course, climate change is a big topic, so we won't be tackling it in just one episode. Stay tuned over the next few weeks as we walk through many different aspects of climate change and its impact on public health. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and outside the field of public health. My name is Anya Morozov, and today I'm in the Zoom studio with Dr. Peter Thorne, a professor in occupational and environmental health and co-director of the Environmental Health Sciences Research Center here at our very own University of Iowa College of Public Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thorne.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Anya.
0: Yeah, so to start off, we always like to just kind of walk through the background of our guests and specifically for you how it relates to climate change.
1: Yeah, well, I'm happy to talk about that. So you know, I was trained as a chemical engineer and a toxicologist, and my real day job is a pulmonary toxicologist, and I teach in that area. But over the years, I've gotten involved with policy, really translating the research that we do at the university into rules and regulations and policies that help ensure the health of the public. And particularly as a pulmonary toxicologist, that involves air pollution and the Environmental Protection Agency, where I've done quite a lot of work. But as I've studied this, I've recognized that air pollution is tied very closely to climate change, that many of the adverse health effects associated with climate change dovetail with, with the use of energy. And energy is certainly important to the solutions we're looking for to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions from climate change. I took a look at the landscape of teaching on the university and recognized that we really didn't have a course in climate change at the University of Iowa, yet I see this as perhaps our grandest challenge in public health in the 21st century. So I felt a strong desire to develop such a course, and I did develop a course called Climageddon, Climate Change and Public Health, and I've been teaching that now for seven years, and this is really made me increase my scholarship in this area. And we're actually doing research in my lab group now on climate change and health.
0: Well, that's great. So you you started with pulmonary toxicology and then found an unfilled niche at the university in terms of an important class topic and decided to help fill it. So thanks for doing that. Next, we're going to move on to a very big question, but what What exactly is climate change in kind of layman's terms?
1: Yeah, so here it's important to differentiate between climate change and anthropogenic climate change. So anthropogenic means human caused or of human origin. So climate change in general is just how over long periods of time the climate of the earth changes. And this happens on a grand scale in geologic time, depending upon the tilt of the earth In relationship to the sun, the eccentricity or the elliptical nature of the orbit of the sun changes over long periods of time, 400,000 year cycles. So it's a natural phenomenon in geologic time for there to be ice ages and periods of time when there might be, for instance, dinosaurs on the North Pole. That hasn't happened in 65 million years, but it does happen. But when we talk about climate change in the context of human caused climate change, anthropogenic, it's happening over a very short time scale. Basically, the starting point is usually the industrial revolution around 1850 when we start burning coal and using fossil fuels for energy up until the present period of time. When we're seeing changes in the climate that are so rapid that they could never have happened naturally and have never happened naturally. So it's it's really a, an unusual situation that is, there's many, many lines of evidence showing that this is caused by humans releasing greenhouse gases to the environment and all the changes that come therefrom.
0: I'm taking a class called Global Environmental Health right now. I think you're one of the instructors for that as well. Um and one of the things that they showed pretty early on was just a chart of the CO2 in the atmosphere over time and it is there's like this big kind of jump towards recent times that does not really match the longer term patterns. So that would probably be the anthropogenic climate change.
1: Yes. And CO2 is just one of the big greenhouse gases. Methane and nitrous oxide are the other ones that are of primary concern, and all of them have gone up drastically. And a number of people who work in the area of climate change talk about when they were born in terms of what the parts per million of carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere, rather than giving a birth the year. So I was born at about 300 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that curve you're relating is called the Keeling Curve. That's measured the measurement of atmospheric carbon dioxide at Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. And it just shows that it's been going up dramatically. And so I was born at 300. Now we're at 417 parts per million carbon dioxide. And the historic average is about 285 parts per million. So we, we have dramatically added carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And most of that or much of that has been absorbed by the oceans so if if not for the oceans taking up so much of that, it, we would have put even higher concentrations into the atmosphere and by the way i'll be I'll be lecturing in global environmental health on the topic of climate change later in the semester.
0: Very excited for that.
1: <laughs> Great.
0: Um, but yeah, it sounds like this is yet another curve that we'd like to flatten
1: <laughs> exactly
0: so moving on, we gave. A brief overview of climate change. I'm sure we could spend an entire episode just talking about that, but kind of trying to get more towards the health impacts of climate change. I know there's many, but what do you think are some of the most concerning health impacts of climate change? Maybe like your top three or something.
1: Well, first, I, I'd like to think about human impacts because the human impacts relate to the human health impacts directly. So what we're seeing already and what the climate models have been predicting for decades is that we're seeing a rising sea level as we're melting glaciers and the arctic ice and the greenland ice this water is going into the sea and it's raising the sea level at the same time we're warming the oceans and when you warm water it actually expands in volume so those two are compounding to cause an increase in sea level such that when we get storms and particularly hurricanes and typhoons that come with a storm surge, that is having a much bigger impact on the land. And so these events, these what we used to call natural disasters, I call them climate exacerbated disasters are really inundating many coastal areas, which is causing a lot of suffering. People losing homes, often people who were stationary as being migrants, climate migrants, have to move to other places. And and so along with that, oftentimes their health suffers. We have people who, who are living in refugee camps where infectious diseases are more likely to occur because of problems with sanitation and just the clustering of people, as we know from pandemics and cholera epidemics, that when you have a lot of people thrown together under poor living conditions, that these kinds of situations arise. So that's that would be one category of effects. Many places are experiencing drought and increased Heat, a lot of global warming is occurring such that we're starting to see temperatures being elevated well beyond what they normally would be. And oftentimes it's nighttime temperatures, so people don't get the relief of cooling from the day's heat. And this is leading to heat stroke heat stress, particularly among those who who live without air conditioning and modern conveniences that we have, and people who work outside, laborers, construction workers, farmers, people like that suffering from heat stroke. And we've seen a number of extreme heat events occur in Europe. In the last decade, much of Europe doesn't have air conditioning, because traditionally, they haven't needed it. And now they do. And we see deaths and heat stroke occurring among people there. So so that's another one. And then on the more mundane level, perhaps not life-threatening as often, but we're seeing people who, who have allergies. This one touches close to home. People who have seasonal allergies, allergy season is coming sooner. It's lasting longer. The burden of pollens is higher. So we have more extreme levels of allergy and we're starting to see new allergenic species move northward in many parts of the world such that new allergens are being introduced and allergy sufferers are there so that's three and let me give a fourth one and this is that water quality and quantity are becoming major problems around the world there's many places that don't have sufficient water resources anymore in some cases These are places where the the winter produced snow pack in the mountains, and that snow stored the water as if it were in a reservoir. When it warms up just a little bit, that snow can come as rain, and then there's no storage, which foretells uh, bad things later in the year when they need that water. In other places, we're finding that the water is becoming contaminated due to harmful algal blooms. And this is increasingly a problem we're seeing in Iowa, where surface water is warmer, and the cyanobacteria that create these harmful algal blooms outcompete other organisms, and then you get the production of cyanobacterial toxins like microcystins and saxitoxin, and this makes the water unsuitable for drinking, swimming, fishing, and even showering. So it becomes a problem for communities to supply safe water for the people to Drink and use. So those are just four. There's more.
0: Yes, (laughs) yes, I'm sure there are many more. But thank you for providing that overview. And you also created a great segue to the next question, which is when we think about Iowa specifically, you mentioned water contamination due to algal blooms. What are some other regional health impacts that are likely to result from climate change?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a good opportunity to introduce the notion of the inequality of the impacts of climate change. There's definitely problems of environmental justice and social inequality. For instance, we're anticipating that Iowa is going to have as many as 15 days above 106 each year by the year 2040. And so with that, the people who can't afford air conditioning or have poor housing that can't really be affordably air conditioned, we're going to need to provide cooling centers and other public health infrastructure to help people like that and to have people monitoring those who are in need, the elderly and the poor, and getting them to cooling centers. So that's something that Iowa communities need to be planning for. In terms of people working outside, as I mentioned earlier, we may have to adjust the day or just not do certain types of work when there is extreme heat like that. Iowa has had some increasing numbers of swim advisories put out there where it's not safe to swim in certain waters. We need to be communicating these more effectively and in multiple languages, because typically a sign is put up in English that just isn't all that informative or visible. So we're working to try and do more about advancing information about that. And then The extreme events is the other. We're seeing a huge increase in disasters. The U.S. government tracks billion-dollar disasters over time, and the numbers are going up dramatically with time. And we've seen certainly our share of extreme rain events and flooding in Iowa, so we can anticipate that those will become more extreme and more common as we go forward in time because warmer air holds more water and a lot more energy so that when big storms come, they have the capacity to dump as many as we've seen in Iowa, even rainfall events of 15 inches of rain in one rainfall event. And that's really without precedent in our 120 years of keeping track of weather and these kinds of dramatic events. So when we do have flooding, it displaces a lot of people. People lose their homes, their livelihoods, their farms, and that causes a lot of mental health problems as well. And so we've been hearing in Iowa a lot about mental health services and needing a lot more and a lot better mental health care. This certainly is brought out very dramatically when we have these climate disasters.
0: You mentioned a lot of things there that are all kind of very different, but all tied to this common theme of impacts from climate change. Yeah,
1: and w- one other thing, you know, we can think of long term is Iowa probably is going to become a destination for people escaping the coasts. So mm-hmm. the forecast for Florida, take it as one example for 2050 and 2100, quite a ways out in the future, but much of Florida is expected to be underwater. And so those Floridians will need to go somewhere, and many of them may choose to settle in Iowa because we're at 700 feet above sea level or 650. And so we may become a destination for people moving here, and that's something we should be thinking about as well.
0: Yeah, and it's like, it's 2050 is not that far away. <laughs> like, we're, we're in 2022, almost 2023 now, so that is getting closer and closer, and uh, we... Yeah, it sounds like we have a lot that we need to be preparing for. One thing, this is kind of a tangent, but related to the impact of really hot days. I know over the summer, me and a bunch of other public health students actually helped Johnson County with a kind of an emergency preparedness exercise where we did give surveys across Johnson County to randomly selected households about extreme heat and whether they'd experienced symptoms and then what what mechanisms they had or didn't have to take care of themselves in extreme heat events. So if they had air conditioning or if they had like medical devices and things. So there are preparations kind of getting in place even at the local level, which is, I guess, <laughs> a positive.
1: And, and in, in addition to the 3.2 million people in Iowa, we have about 25 million hogs and mm. And I know that livestock producers worry about the extreme heat, both from the standpoint of the health and welfare of the animals, but also they they don't convert feed to body mass as fast under extreme heat conditions. So that means that it takes longer to raise a pig to be ready for slaughter under extreme heat circumstances. So there's just a lot of other aspects of this that pertain to the economy of Iowa, and particularly with regard to agriculture, which is such a big part of what we do here. But importantly, Iowa can be part of the solution. And we are being part of the solution from the standpoint of renewable energy. Iowa is one of the three leading states in terms of production of energy from wind, electrical energy from wind. And we are now the top in terms of the proportion of our energy needs that are met from wind. And we're about number three in terms of total megawatts of power generated from wind. So Iowa is really out there in terms of demonstrating the feasibility of wind energy as a clean energy solution instead of coal and fossil fuels.
0: Yes, that is one really good kind of glimmer of hope and exciting thing that we We can be part of the solution, as you said. And we're just a kind of a preview. We're going to dive into that in in a future episode. So stay tuned. All right, good. So, kind of turning a lens towards health equity, which is a central part of public health, you already mentioned a few, but there are so many examples of how the impacts of climate change can create health inequities. So, for the sake of time, can you walk us through one or a few examples of how? you see the impacts of climate change creating health inequities?
1: Sure. How, how about one domestic and one international? So let's start with the domestic. We know that there's a maldistribution of people exposed to the pollutants that arise from fossil fuels, both in terms of extractive industries, such as fracking and refineries, where the people who live near refineries and have the biggest burden of exposure to those pollutants are people of color and people of low income. When we have climate change and warmer climate, we can have more production of ozone and particulate matter, particularly fine particulate matter. And it especially affects those people who are already experiencing higher levels of of exposure pollutants. So they have the disease burden that many of us do not have by virtue of being able to live in healthier places. So at the EPA right now, a lot of the discussion about this and analysis of policies since the Biden administration came in, is including an evaluation, a granular evaluation of what is the differential impact on people of different socioeconomic and racial groups. So there's a lot of progress happening on that that is really encouraging just just in the last two years. On the international front, I mentioned, well, let's think of Bangladesh as an example. So Bangladesh had a huge flood this year. They had record temperatures that were melting glaciers and snowpack in the Himalaya. At the same time, they had monsoon rains that were of record proportion such that a third of the country was underwater. So when you think about a third of a country that has some 300 million people being underwater, you can imagine that that produces a lot of climate refugees. And so thinking about that, where are those people gonna go? Where is the relief going to come from? The international aid agencies haven't the capacity to take care of that many people. And in the future, these are going to become more common, affecting more places in the world, and they'll be more extreme. And so we have to worry about climate refugees. And in many cases, the places that are least able to take care of their citizens and address these disasters are the countries that contributed the least to climate change. In other words, over years, they haven't used coal and oil to power their economies like the Western nations and the developed nations have. So many feel that the polluter should pay and that it's incumbent on us as rich countries that really produced most of the greenhouse gases to provide the relief and the financial assistance to these countries that are suffering because of basically all those greenhouse gases that we emitted. So far, we're not seeing that that really the countries responsible for this have been mobilized to provide that relief, but that needs to happen in the future.
0: Yeah, that is one just major global injustice that, you know, no one person is going to solve. But the more we kind of create those pressures, I think the more we can hopefully take some of those smaller steps. Like you mentioned, now the EPA does the evaluation of differential impact on like socioeconomic status and racial groups. That's a small step and definitely a lot more is needed, but at least it is something in the right direction. And I think it came from an increased awareness of the scope of this issue and the scope of the injustice that our current system creates. So,
1: so, so I'm I'm in relation to what you just said, Anya, I'm, I'm hopeful that our increased awareness for domestic policy will also extend to having a better view of the world and seeing the injustices that we face globally.
0: Yes. So that leads right into our next question, which is, how do you remain hopeful in the face of such a large public health issue? I mean, you said you kind of found this niche and are teaching about climate change. And I mean, sitting in global environmental health right now, it can be a pretty <laughs> grim class sometimes. So, how do you stay hopeful? Well,
1: uh, first of all, I don't want the class to feel like doom scrolling and, and not offering solutions. But seeing you know, basically, 50 years of inactivity to a large extent. It is very hard to be hopeful sometimes because there's been a lot of talk from politicians and and delegates to UN conventions about the solutions. We, we as scientists understand the problems. The climate models tell us what's coming. They're they're extremely accurate and reliable. Yet we don't seem to. Be having the, the countries of the nation, the nations of the world take the steps that are needed to deal with it. So what I turn to when I need to have that injection of hopefulness is empowering the young people to be the change agents. Because I think the people of my parents generation and my generation in particular have failed your generation we say we care about the future we say we care about children but our actions don't really show that and so there's a lot of young people that are understanding what is at stake and are learning about the solutions learning about how dire the predictions are and and what drastic measures need to be taken and so I think that if we can mobilize the young people who have this understanding to be engaged in the political process, be engaged, really be outraged by what's happening, and and talk to people who are in a position to make a difference, and then become the people who make that difference, that's what gives me hope. And, And it's more than living a green life and walking the talk. It's more than just voting. It's more than all that. It's really becoming engaged with the process and becoming part of the solution that that is going to lead to change. And I'm really hopeful that all of my students will go out and be part of that change.
0: Yeah. So kind of a all hands on deck, <laughs> yep. hopefully. Yeah. That, I do think I see a lot of my peers, we do care a lot about these issues and I hope that you know, we can kind of use that to mobilize ourselves and then also mobilize people who are like outside of our circles.
1: Well, there's a lot of disinformation that's out there and, and much of it is deliberate. And so becoming literate, in terms of knowing how to read across things, knowing how to find facts and from fiction. I think the young people are getting pretty good at this because they're being deluged with disinformation. And so I think that's a really important part of it. Some of this, some of this disinformation may fool some people, but I hope it's not fooling young people.
0: Yeah. Actually speaking of disinformation, I just learned today that the idea of the carbon footprint was actually popularized by BP. And, and it was kind of as a way to like get people to think of, of reducing carbon footprint as an individual problem rather than an industry problem, which in reality, I think it's both. But that was a surprising bit of disinformation I learned about just today.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, if if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, The really easy things to do are to insulate your home so that you use less fossil fuels to heat it, to drive less or drive an e-vehicle so you use less fossil fuels, to use less materials, many of which are produced using fossil fuels like plastics, to change your diet so that you're consuming Food that is not traveling so far or that's more locally produced. So, all these things have to do with reducing fossil fuels, right? So, mm-hmm. it's interesting that BP is, as you said, was using that as a way to deflect from fossil fuel.
0: Yeah. Again, like I don't think any of those things are bad things to do or focusing on your impact is a bad thing. But when it deflects from other, like, Larger scale impacts, maybe. Well, anyway, we're kind of nearing the end of our time. What is one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about?
1: One thing that I'm perplexed by is I'm a scientist. I come from a family of people who who have, have a, a, a scientific lens that they apply to most things. And I'm always surprised at how few people... Are really literate in the sciences enough to be able to comprehend what underlies climate science and see the way I see so clearly that this is a a looming disaster. And and so part of the teaching that I do is really to to get everybody up to understand the the underlying science, which has for the most part been known since about 1885. And it's not new science. It's all been there all that time. And and it's just gotten more detailed. Our climate models have gotten more sophisticated. But there's no question about the science. It's just about implementing that science to change policy. And that's the part that frustrates me because as a scientist, it seems like the solutions are pretty much there and we should just act on them. But clearly the world doesn't all see it that way. And that is a challenge.
0: Yeah, I've had similar discussions about a lot of public health topics where, like, when we're in this college, we're kind of inundated with these topics all the time. And it can be hard to get to a place where you're realizing that people outside of the College of Public Health maybe don't view the world through that lens. And so how do you kind of get people up to speed and... um, kind of peel away that lens to teach other people how you came to that lens in the first place.
1: (laughs) So when I travel around Iowa and the world, I I like to talk to people about it and and listen to them. And what do you know about this? What do you think? You know, How do you come to have the views that you have? I I find that very interesting and edifying because I'm learning more the social dimensions of the topic rather than the science, which I already know very well. And talking to farmers about climate change? Well, oftentimes they, you know, where we can come together is they see that the growing season has gotten longer. They plant sooner. They harvest later. They have to plant faster because the spring rains come more dramatically. They have to ensure they have adequate soil moisture because there'll be a drought later in the summer. They don't necessarily ascribe that to climate change, but they see that they're farming practices have had to change. And so there are ways to talk about this topic with anybody. And it's just a matter of understanding where they're coming from and and what their values are.
0: Yeah, actually getting out there and having those discussions is great. Overall, this has been a really enlightening discussion. We've covered a lot. And thank you so much for coming on today and providing all of your insights on such a big picture topic. For our listeners, just remember that this is only week one of our four-part series, and I'm really excited for all of the topics that we're going to dive into over the next month. So stay tuned, and thank you, Dr. Thorne.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today.
0: And that's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Peter Thorne for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.